0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to Origin Story Live. Hands together, please, for Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunst. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. This is only our second ever one, and the first one was half the size. Um, So at this rate, exponentially, we'll be able to do like the O2 in a bit. (laughs) And then you'll be able to go, oh yeah, we saw them at 21 Soho, and you could... They didn't need the screens back then. That's very nice. So last time we workshopped an episode for season two. This time we're doing a brand new topic, the Elite I yes, it, I don't right. know why you're looking at me. I'm sort of, Yes, we are. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Through the prism of celebrated intellectual Matt Goodwin's new book, Values, Voice and Virtue, are we members of the so-called new elite? Are you? Um, we will find out. We'll also talk about how uh, a compliment became an insult. Then in part two, we'll look at some of the most shamelessly misleading and annoying uses of political language in recent months. And take your questions. Then we're going to have quite a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, the sooner that we can hear other people talk rather than ourselves, I think we'll be very grateful for it.
0: I don't agree with that. It
1: <laughs> <laughs> does not surprise me. No, no. Yeah.
0: Um, so the questions We episodes we've done, topics you like us to cover, uh, how we put the show together, personal
1: Are you telling questions. them what to ask?
0: I'm just saying that you can just whatever. <laughs> just whatever. All bets are off. Um, and we'll hang around afterwards, I think, for a little bit for a drink. Ian, do you have anything to say on the, the subject of why we're here?
1: Shall we introduce ourselves? My name is Ian Dunt. Uh, <laughs> I am a columnist for the iNewspaper, and I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. Are you? And this is my co host, Dorian Linsky. He's written some books as well. I've also written
0: It doesn't matter. Yeah. But I don't like to talk about them like Ian does <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Shameless hustle. <laughs> so, The Elite. Um, According to my best friend in the world, the OED, um, this first entered English from the French around 1400, but it meant synonym for elect, so you could be elated to a position, which uh, sort of fallen out of favour, that one. Um, the current meaning you get in the 18th century, it says the pick or choice part of society, a group of people, etc. A select group that is superior... So it says two meanings. A, a select group that is superior in terms of ability or qualities to the rest of a group or society. Or B a group or class of people seen as having the most power and influence in a society, especially on account of their wealth or privilege. Ian, so it strikes me that the people with the most power and influence are not always the people with, who are superior in ability and qualities. <laughs> like not, Is there anything about our recent history not, that has given you that it's impression? It's not always the case. Sometimes something goes wrong. Um, So would you say the first meaning is kind of not really what we mean politically? It's sort of like it means elite in sport or another field like that. And it's the second one really that we're talking about.
1: It definitely is. But there's been this sort of it's quite rare that you ever hear it used in a positive way. Like, even if you were to say, like, so back in the day, like, so the French civil service, there'd be this thing of, like, you're the elite, you know, of what we have to offer. And that would be considered something that you would aspire towards. Now it is relentlessly negative And the context in which it's used is almost always populism, right? It's always, like, a worldview that pits the people versus the elite. yeah and These are both kind of largely fictitious categories that you can just dump all of the stuff that you like into the people and all the stuff you don't like into the elite. And it gives you this sort of little fairy story where you're never really responsible for any of the things that you've catastrophically fucked up because, you know, that had to have been the elite. And so off you go. So it's quite a, it's quite a convenient political outlook, especially for people who are perennially incompetent.
0: So in politics, there is a field called elite theory, uh, which describes a minority whose power is largely immune to democratic elections, that it's fairly consistent. So it's institutions, corporations, think tanks, staffed by people with similar backgrounds. Hmm. Um, and this sort of elite theory starts in, in Italy in the 19th century, and, and people put it in terms of an organized minority versus an unorganized majority. And so basically saying that the people that... There are people who are really interested in politics and power and they wield it. And then other people are disengaged or disorganized and they don't get it. I'm not quite sure where they're basically going, well, that's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's what it was then. The classic text now, uh, which um, I read recently, it's called The Power Elite by Charles Wright Mills, American sociologist. It's from 1956. He also popularized the term new left Hmm. and then died at 45. Um, So he did quite well in a short space of time, Mm -hmm. I would say. Anyone anyone died younger than me, but, you know, popularised two terms. (laughs) Just makes me feel a little bit small, (laughs) that's all. Um, So at the time it was seen as quite angry and pessimistic, but it was really well received by the British left, people like Ralph Miliband and Stuart Hall and E.P. Thompson and stuff, and they're the people that, that really liked it, and in fact it inspired the new left then the new left were seeing themselves as uh, a rebellion against the elite. Um, but they, of course, were like young university students on the left, which is probably not what Matt Goodwin means by anti-elite. <laughs> I don't think he likes the new left, but we'll come to that. Um, so what he did, what Mills did was he divided the power elite into these three you know, sections, the economic, corporations the security apparatus the military and the political and he argued these have become stronger in the mid-20th century and there's a whole genre of books after world war ii which are very concerned about totalitarianism could it happen again and so a lot of it's to do with the mass media and the weakness of democracy and they were talking about okay here is an example of something that is in his view fundamentally undemocratic because it doesn't really matter um who's in power these same people Um, have power behind the scenes. Not in a spooky way. Mm -hmm. He really pointed out this was not a conspiracy theory. Um, It wasn't kind of sinister people deliberately doing this stuff. But he said that without conscious effort, they absorb the aspiration to be the ones who decide. So it's people whose decisions have consequences. You know, it's high status, it's prestige, it's, it's the right connections. There's a social... Melia that they swim in um, says they accept one another, understand one another marry one another, tend to work and to think if not together at least alike and in 1956 in America this is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant men Um, so that was his idea then he breaks it down into all these other categories because he has a book to fill (laughs) frankly, even back in 1956 you could really, you had this thing is this just an article? (laughs) And then he's like, no, because I have nine categories that I have to spell out one by one. Um, and he does point out that, that there's a conspiratorial version of this where he says it's, it's the Jews or it's the bourgeoisie or it's the communists. Um, and he says, according to such notions of the omnipotent elite as historical cause, the elite is never an entirely visible agency. It is, in fact, a secular substitute for the will of God. And he's trying to distance himself from that and going that they, they are not... This, it's not this, you know, a sort of sinister group of people meeting in smoky rooms. It's always, it's just sort of people who, it's almost a feeling, he's sort of saying. It's people who feel that their choices are consequential. And he's saying most people, because at that time, 50s, a lot of people said, oh, well, the masses have this power. And there was all this kind of pre-war stuff about, uh-oh, the masses want to do things now. And he was sort of going, actually, no. They, they, that's not where the power lies. It does lie in in, um, in these particular you know, class structures of wealth and celebrity and influence. It's weird, right? Because
1: some of that works in certain areas, sort of. So, I mean, the instant thing is you think about the civil service, right? Like, no matter what you do, you're never going to get rid of a permanent secretary. They really are named very, very well indeed. You know, they are, they are permanent, right? Um, <laughs> And so it doesn't respond to the differences in elections. But then, and very much the civil service has always had a sort of corporate mindset and a corporate culture and attitude and its own series of sort of prejudices and and preferences. But it doesn't have, you know, to just put it as politics, it doesn't have the same views necessarily as certainly elected politicians. Um, So it, it... It's not like there's a settled consensus within even politics, even from those parts of it that don't change. Then when you look at something like journalism, like journalism until sort of about 10, 15 years ago was kind of relatively working class. Like it was, you know, there was certainly like a huge amount of working class people in it, huge number, primarily because you had local press that people could just sort of, you know, rotate through up into the national papers. And they were setting the political agenda in quite a meaningful way way, that's changed because of the internet and now there's hardly anyone that's working class in journalism everyone sounds like me and had the same kind of you know, root into the profession that I did but like, it, it, all of this stuff is in such tumult and change and there's these odd tensions within it that it's quite, once you talk about like the elite in one given area, even politics, it's quite a hard
0: I find it quite hard to sort of believe in really Well, the reason why, you know, I think it, it can be used as a conspiracy theory that that's the false version of it. Because the real version of it is that a lot of people in the elite um, don't like each other.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and they don't agree. Um, and I always find that kind of a strange thing in the way that people often think about the way that, the way that things work, is that all these people, um, you know, every, everybody sort of, everybody agrees. Everybody's from exactly the same background. They've got the same aims. And they don't, of course, I mean, you do get those networks and you know, you're 55 Tufton Street Mm -hmm. and so on and Old Etonians and, yeah, obviously there's these networks but the more you sort of... If you expand the elite to people whose decisions matter then you're going to find a lot of people who want to make different decisions. And so you would have to be quite a kind of bad writer and thinker to simplify...
1: (laughs) I think Uh, I see where you're going with this. Mills' concept (laughs) into
0: a kind of a sort of phantasmagorical catch-all for people that you don't like. <laughs> right, should we talk about the book? We should talk about the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, no, I see. Yeah, no, that does... That's, that, that works, doesn't it? Um, well, firstly, Ian, how much did you enjoy the opportunity to read this book? Because I fear that you might not have read it if not for this show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be accurate. No, I really fucking hated it. And I sort of ended up messaging you sort of just being like, this is fucking dreadful. And if I, you were, you, you were, I, I don't think I've this, you must've hated something more than this, but I've never received WhatsApp messages from you while you were hating something this much <laughs> in real time.
0: Well, I was angry <laughs> because one of the aims of the podcast is to go in, you know, quite uh, with a lot of generosity of spirits and objectivity, and so therefore we, we, you know, so we come away and we end up saying things that maybe we didn't think we were going to say, like, oh, you know, Thatcher was quite good on global warming at some point, or, oh, Reagan didn't actually want us all to die in a nuclear inferno, Mm. or, you know, Mussolini was not as bad as Hitler. You know, things like... (laughs) I You're mean, talking, a low, by the way, because you're so close to being cancelled. <laughs> obviously, not as bad as... If someone said, oh, he's not as bad as Hitler, I would not say it as a compliment. But still, <laughs> you know, you go in there trying not to go, like, in a rather sort of, you know, glib, pre-cooked way. Mm. Oh, I knew this would be shit, and it is shit. And yet... <laughs> we are where we are. The facts are what they are. Um, it's very poor. Um, but as we can see, he is well placed uh, to be a paladin for the people against the over educated and overexposed London elite, as he explains in the blurb. He says, Matthew J. Goodwin is professor of politics at the University of Kent. The author of four books, including the Sunday Times bestseller National Populism, he appears regularly in print and broadcast media, including the Sunday Times and the BBC. Goodwin has advised more than Two hundred organisations on political issues. He lives in London. So <laughs> you can every that, sentence of that, that is like he's his own enemy. It's like elite yeah. tick. <laughs> so it's possible that this is some weird psychodrama, <laughs> some war on the self that we've all been swept up in. Um, but he doesn't count as an elite in one particular way. What's that? He really hates immigrants um, and, and and the children of immigrants
1: he makes that very clear that the children of immigrants are also a problem. in fact, I would say, and we 'll see this as we go through this book, that it actually becomes quite quite kind of shockingly right wing. He gets away with it because at no point does he say, "I believe this." What he says is it 's an act of intellectual genius, as you yeah, can yeah. imagine so, the majority think this. Real and peop- by the way,
0: real people. Real people whose yeah. opinions matter. Yeah, white, uh, working class. He uses a variety of terms. Al- but he's always also, aware. I think where he's very clever is that his writing is very boring. <laughs> and a lot of the time, people who are quite flamboyant writers, you know, you're Rod Liddles or Mark Stein or whatever on the right, they end up sounding crazy because they're like really there's a lot of energy in the prose, and so therefore they end up saying the thing that you're not meant to say, yeah, that's right. but yeah. because he's sort of just like ploddy poll prof kind of dum dom," and then this survey says that, and this poll showed that. Um, Can he do all the quotes in that voice? <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't really have to go, "Oh, I don't like I don't like this lot. And yet the choice of sources and facts and people who are worth you know, quoting and whose views are valid. I mean, he does suggest a a very clear bias along the way, but he's sort of hidden it behind this sort of scrim of incredibly dull uh, writing. I've always really disliked his
1: disingenuousness because... He's not, you know, the the people that will just come out and say, well, I believe in this. That's one thing, and you can grapple with it. But he never actually says that. He still maintains this sort of fiction of, I'm just the objective sort of political analyst, and I'm just telling you what people in the country really think that all of you elitists don't want to hear. Now, it's not true that people in the country think this. As he himself concedes in the book, and is certainly conceded in the sources that he cites, about 25% of the country feel this way. We've known this for a long time. Right? Very roughly speaking, take an issue like immigration. About 25% of the country basically want to stop all immigration. About 25% of the country basically want to kind of open border, super liberal. Everyone else is in the middle. And not quite... I mean, in that sort of middle 50%, you've got about a third that just don't, just don't care. So they'll just constantly cite, like, don't know, don't know. Any poll you give them, is like, they're like Keith from The Office, basically. They're just like, just don't, don't care, just don't know. And then the rest who are on the fence... And those are the guys that in a campaign you go for, right? Those are the guys that can be convinced one way or the other, they're open to it. He, he, he either knows that and lies about it, or he doesn't understand the sources that he's citing because over and over in those sources, that's the finding again and again and again. It's very, very consistent. Um, So instead he just takes all of his own views. And the further you go into the book, those views become quite wacky. I wasn't expecting the really quite long passages on sexual freedom and, and by way I was like, oh, right, so we're talking about no more one-night stands now. This is a, you know, this is a problem, right? No more divorce. I would rather read Matt
0: Goodwin writing pages about how he's against sexual freedom than Matt Goodwin celebrating sexual, his own sexual freedom for several <laughs> several pages. That's an excellent point. Um,
1: so, but, he doesn't, but he doesn't actually just come out and say, well, I'm against one-night stands or whatever. He says, look, these guys, the real people, are against it. And so it's all concealed in this kind of academic veneer. But it's not a very convincing veneering. Once you scratch away a little bit, you're like, no, I'm pretty sure these are just your opinions that you've tried to justify by pretending that everyone else agrees with you.
0: So, can I say, has anyone here read Values, Voice and Virtue, the new British politics? We have a free copy here. (laughs) Um, Which I was flinging with
1: great force (laughs) into the uh, audience at the end. I was going to bring mine, but on at least three separate pages I wrote the words, what a cunt. (laughs) only 3 <laughs> uh, after that was just acronyms it was just like
0: started off working with Rob Ford, who actually had been on... He appeared on Romania back in the day, isn't he? He's Rob Ford's brilliant. Yeah. Really sound political professor, revolt on the right. And they were observing a thing that was happening, like the sort of the rise of UKIP, dissatisfaction uh, on the right with the Tories, um, you know, anti-European feeling, etc. And then at some point, I don't know, because I haven't read all of his books, but at some point he just... He stopped... It was very obvious that he was just like, these are my guys. Mm. And he fell out with Rob Ford. And, it's, I mean, unfortunately, Matt Goodwin has blocked me on Twitter. Still, if he sees this, I'm sure he'll undo it. (laughs) He'll he'll want to hear this. He'll he'll want that sweet Patreon (laughs) uh, bonus podcast. Um, Yeah, but Matt... So I can't see what he's written, but I love seeing, like... Rob Ford obviously dunking on him. Yeah. And I have to work out what he's written from what Rob Ford is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a kind of, you know, he's a sort of
1: fascinating case. I mean, if the world was made up of political nerds like us, there would be West End shows about his relationship with Rob Ford. <laughs> you know, because it's, because it's like, you know, two people study a thing and one of them actually means to study it and is objective about it and, you know, about its limitations. And the other one just sort of gets lost in the thing that he's studying until he becomes it. It's like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly or something, you know, and then just starts like falling apart. And you're like, oh, and then I would happily watch that. Well,
0: they're the Morrissey and Ma of political science. Oh, very good. Very good. So you can still read Revolt on the Right, but you just go, I like the Ford bits. (laughs) I only like the Ford bits. Now, he does something else quite uh, clever. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> oh, let's say clever. Um, is that, of course, there are a lot of things that are true in this book. Yep. But it was like, what's that old quote about? There's, you know, there's much in here that is both you know, true and new, but the things that are true are not new, and the things that are <laughs> new are not true. It's sort of like that. So he talks about like, regional and class inequality, um, lack of working-class representation in politics and the media, um, doesn't much like neoliberalism, Mm. Um, doesn't really understand what it is though <laughs> um the growing importance of education and political divides like these are all sort of true things but then he makes weird claims like well the left don't care about privatisation you know or inequality it's like it's one of really one of the main things <laughs> that the left is into um, They're famously into that yeah like opposing privatisation and inequality um But he's got a clever definition of the elite, um, which he he starts on, he goes, education, careers and values. And you think education, fair? Mm. Well, no fucking hell, he bangs on about it. Careers, Mm. career, fair Mm. enough. Values, that's actually what he wants to get on to, doesn't he? So what does he think the new elite is? I'm going to ask you that first. Like, what do you think he thinks that it is?
1: I wrote down his definition, actually. I couldn't make head or tail of it. It's just this sort of list of. Well, no, actually, there's no point reading this because it's sort of it 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 is basically what you have just said. They're, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're increasingly loud and dominant voice, they're growing sense of moral righteousness over the groups in British society. He talks a lot about Oxford and Russell group. He sort of he essentially says there's been a revolutionary takeover. It started in 1979 with Margaret Thatcher. It ended in 2016 with Brexit. Mm. Uh, I mean, I should just stop there for a moment, just because that's so batshit. You know, like, it, it's like, he, he doesn't seem to properly recognise the distinction. He sort of says, look, Thatcherism came in, and it was liberalism economically. Mm. Then New Labour comes in, and they accept the economic liberalism, but they add cultural liberalism, so it's just straight-up liberalism wherever you fucking look. <laughs> and now that's, you know, and that's, that's the elite. And they, they created yeah, yeah. the elite, the people who benefit from this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then he says, people go into this... He, he's a bit confused about the motivation of, of the elite, Sometimes he talks about a takeover, takeover of institutions and attempt to sort of push people down to promote political agenda. So it's, quite a, it's kind of a conspiracy theory at that stage. Other times, he talks about it like a kind of um, a form of finding your status. It's a kind of psychology. So he says this at one point. In the, this is also weird sorry so that you get this the old elite he says are sort of hereditary landowners and he, so, des-
0: and he describes them and he goes well they used to wear you used to be able to tell them because they would wear top hats yes and it was like so the old elite was basically the monopoly man yeah exactly it's the baddie in a Bolshevik
1: poster yeah and the new elite is someone that went to UCL yeah yeah um so it says, "In the past, the old elite used to signal their status and their sense of superiority through delicate and restrictive clothing, <laughs> this is so fucking weird. such as tuxedos and top hats, and by engaging in time-consuming leisure activities which manual workers did not have the time to do, such as playing golf, visiting galleries and museums, and going on very long holidays." In their tuxedos and top in their hats. Tuxedos and, <laughs> It's just wasting my fucking time. Today, in sharp contrast, the new elite has decoupled social status from goods and reattached it to beliefs. Being wealthy, highly educated, and professionally successful are no longer enough. Now the new elite must be seen as more morally righteous and more virtuous. Um, Routinely, they signal these beliefs to other elites... Not only to try and garner more social status for themselves, but to disassociate themselves from who they see as the morally inferior masses below, who have the wrong education, the wrong
0: values, and the wrong political loyalties. Well, he mixes up morality and education. So he makes this claim where I did write um, bollocks. It's quite polite quite The only route to leading a valuable and virtuous life worthy of respect from others has come to be seen as having the right degree from one of the right Oxbridge or Russell Group universities and holding the right set of elite beliefs to accompany this education. Now, I did wish I was his editor. <laughs> you know, did you? Well, no, I didn't, because <laughs> they couldn't pay me enough. No, but I did want to come back to him and go, does, I, does anybody think that the only way to to be considered virtuous is to have gone to a Russell Group University. (laughs) Like, that doesn't seem like... And when they go, the right set of elite beliefs to accompany this education, well, there's a lot of people from Oxbridge in political life Mm. and they seem to have different beliefs. (laughs) Like, it's quite mixed. And so what he's done is he's sort of jumbled this all up in a kind of, like, it's not really smoke and mirrors because you can see the problem with it, mm-hmm. but he just sort of just go, he, he bundles it all up together. And if you compare it to like the way that Charles Wright Mills was very methodically going, well, these guys aren't really the same as these guys, but they are, They sort of overlap. They're the kind of old elite families of Manhattan are not the same as new celebrities or generals, but here is how they form an elite. And Michael just piles them one on top of the other, um, which of course doesn't make, Any sense at all? Any sense at all. Would you like to hear my favourite passage? Yes. It's
1: where he... Would you like to hear his favourite passage? (laughs) Uh, It's where he explains what footnotes are. He says, says, before we embark on our journey, I would like to make two further points. Firstly, some of the issues we will explore are controversial, so it is essential that you can find the evidence for my claims. The endnotes throughout this book will guide you to the evidence if you want to continue your intellectual journey, fuck my life, (laughs) then follow these notes. And so I thought it was quite useful. So like, as I was reading, I was like, well, I do want to continue my intellectual journey. So I did keep on checking the notes. And what's extraordinary is there's these sort of, he mostly just sort of deals with surveys. And then he just veers off into a couple of paths of just these generalizations Mm -hmm. along the lines of what you just said. And the endnotes there are fucking fascinating. So I'll tell you this one. So he says, Crucially, progressives are also the most likely of all groups to favour restrictions on people's speech as a means of promoting their values and, in their eyes, protecting minorities. They often stress the need to limit speech or revise symbols and national history to avoid causing harm to minorities. They are far more comfortable than others with restricting freedom of speech in the pursuit of their goals. They are the most likely to support the no-platforming of speakers who hold controversial views. Now, that was Chapter 2, Footnote 38. Uh, footnote 38 is, refers to a press release from the Policy Institute, King's College London, using research from Ipsos Mori. His description of that press release is as follows. King's College London News Centre, colon, UK Culture War Debate. Okay. Now, if you click it and see the report, the report is called UK Culture War Debate, colon, Public divide into four groups, not two warring tribes. I sort of wonder why he left out that second part, given that it completely <laughs> undermines his entire proposition. Subheading, at least half the public take a more nuanced and variable position. Yes, it's almost like it was inconvenient. And other divides 26% of the population just like we say, over and over, holds kind of the views that he ascribes to the the majority. And then it says this. This is on no platforming. It is true, as he says, very precisely true, as he says, that progressives are more likely to support no platforming. But here's the quote. In no group does no platforming controversial speakers attract majority support. Around a third of progressives, 33%, are in favor of it, the highest of any group, although this is matched by the same proportion who are against it. Ben Page, chief executive of Ipsos Mori, is quoted in the report, Britons of all shades of opinion on race relations do not tend to think that no platforming people is a good idea. Oh. So this is it. Like, once you start digging into the so stuff... He made, like, an
0: honest mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which happens, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, when, when I try to pin out, okay, wh- who's in the elite? All right, so it's everyone that's gone to university, even though he also complains that too many people go to university, thus making it yeah. less elite. Because like four in 10 under 35s in 2016 had a degree. And then another point he says that, and they're all liberal, and yet another point he says that actually only one in three graduates are liberal. And it's not even 50% in London, which surprised me. I think he's talking like, about very liberal, or whatever his definitions are. Well, sometimes he, he, sometimes he, he distinguishes himself. it. He
1: distinguishes sort of lib, cosmopolitan liberals, I think he calls them, from radical progressives. Radical but progressives. other times he lumps them together and it's not clear what's going on with those Well, he's characters. a great
0: lumper mm. of people because you're trying to kind of follow the narrative in a way that, like you know, when we do the podcast, right? And we're trying to work out a narrative. You go, where do we start this story? And what are the, who fits and who, you know, who doesn't? And where the different camps or whatever? Um, not a problem here. Absolutely not a problem. Um, So it starts with Thatcher in 1979. Also somehow involves the new left from the 1960s. um, Also somehow goes back to an Orwell essay from 1940. Um, So anyway, and then when you talk about Labour Party, there's no distinction between Blair, Corbyn and Starmer. Now, I don't know if you follow the Labour Party. (laughs) (laughs) But these guys don't get on. And so I was like, well, hang on. So the third-way technocrat and the sort of old-style socialist are essentially the same thing, along with Margaret Thatcher, who, despite the fact she was very socially conservative, that's sort of just one of those things where he just acknowledges and goes, anyway. <laughs> so there's a big old jumble. So then it's everyone who's at a, um in university, people who live in cities. Um, Bastards. Even though he also people who live in cities and, and, and people have degrees aren't necessarily um, you know wealthy in many cases. Um, also all young people. <laughs> Just all all young people. And he make, he makes a good point here. He goes, though it is often overlooked, these older voters are also far more likely to vote. Than their younger millennial and Zuma counterparts. And, oh, yeah, no, no one ever fucking talks no about that. No one ever that. mentions it. It's not as if the Tory party's entire electoral <laughs> offer is based on the fact that older people vote more than young people. So, so anyway, so the elite, and like I said, again, we're going back to the Mills foot. the elite really was quite a small. Section of American society, mm-hmm. the elite here. Once you've added up all the graduates and all the people who live in cities and all the people that don't hate immigration, all the young people, um, all the minorities—a phrase that appears on almost every page—then mm. um, <laughs> it doesn't really sound like an elite anymore. It sounds like a good half of the country. He he acknowledges
1: it, so he has this extraordinary. Uh, is it a tick? Not sure. So, it, it's quirk, really worth, delightful quirk. Yeah, let's let's go with that. So he has. The, it's really worth looking at when he uses the word while. Whenever he uses it, what follows is a complete refutation of his argument. But he just does it as a oh, while, blah, 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 and then he cracks on. So to recognize, it's almost to recognize a critic. No, I know, I know <laughs> this. The trouble is that what he said kind of undermines the entire book. So here's a bit here. Hold on. Let's talk about the election in 2019. You know, this great which he has built up as this sort of triumph of traditional values. He calls it the counter-revolution against the elites, you can imagine, right? <laughs> um, between twenty fifteen and twenty nineteen, the share of levers who switched from left to right of the election rocketed by thirty points to reach seventy-four percent. Yet it was a very different story on the other side of the spectrum. Semicolon, because of course he fucking uses semicolons.
0: Hey. Let's uh, not drag them uh, into uh, this
1: <laughs> Semicolon while anti-Brexit parties won more than half the popular vote. You think, oh, that's very interesting. While. That doesn't... While. while, As soon as you see the word while in this book, you're like, what? Oh, fuck, here it comes. Nonetheless. (laughs) And then later on, there's a sort of continuation of that, because he keeps on talking about the way that... He he says, working-class traditionalists, he's calling them, are also, quote, distributed far more evenly across the country. Now, that's fucking interesting, right? Because first past the post... Our electoral system, does not it's not designed really to count votes. It doesn't really care how people vote. What it's designed to do is achieve the most efficient geographical distribution of a vote. And he's completely right in what Mm. he's saying. You know, like progressive votes just stack up in cities doing nothing. Like if you just take inner city constituencies in Manchester, you get an extra four Labour MPs just on the surplus vote. Just on the number of people that vote for the candidate after the point that they've won. So it's entirely true what he's saying. It's just that if your, if your argument is about a popular traditionalist view, you wouldn't care about the geographical distribution of this. The geographical distribution of votes, that's when you know, you start winning constituencies by 5,000. Mm-hmm. Like so he's actually quite cynical there. He, sort of, he kind of knows he's talking absolute bullshit. But he's like, but electorally, it can be a very successful form of bullshit because it can get these people on side. You know, it's essentially like arguing people in marginal constituencies during the new Labour years. she being be like, well, sure, that we focus here because this is where we win. But that is not an argument for where the demographics are.
0: Now, we've, uh, we've both written books, uh, available in shops <laughs> now. Um, and we know, of course, it's impossible to include everything, you know, because of reasons of space and wanting to create a coherent narrative and all that. So some things he, unfortunately, couldn't mention <laughs> in, in the book. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> Like, for example, the working-class backgrounds of uh, Labour front benches like West Streeting and Angela Rayner. Um, this is matter here. that some of the most prominent Brexiters um, have quite a lot of educational and financial privilege. Mm. Couldn't, couldn't fit that in. Um, and in talking about the mechanisms of the elite, he couldn't find space for the power of the right-wing press, uh, think tanks, uh, donors, and so on. And... Um, It's an unfortunate omission because what it means (laughs) is it completely occludes the actual operation of power, which is at the centre of elite theory as an intellectual Mm -hmm. discipline or journey, if you will, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and makes it just seem as if it's lefty liberals. Now, if you're going to attack lefty liberals, the danger is that people are going to think that your guys are racists, but they're not. (laughs) They're not. Um, He goes, although he does members of the new elite, these are things that members of the new elite since the 60s have been into. And he he doesn't say that he has a problem with them, but he sort of, he makes it seem like, well, you can see why this gets on people's nerves. Mm. Stress global human rights, social justice, racial, sexual and gender equality, multiculturalism, environmentalism and Mm anti-discrimination. Which of these do you object to, Matt? Yes. I asked. Yeah. He will not say... Because he's blocked you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the book, he, he, somehow, he somehow fails to say. Um, he just says that they are sceptical about immigration. Um, great use of the word sceptical. He does this all the way through. He talks about... Um, he says, the new elite, love,
1: they dislike hierarchies. They want to prioritise free and equal interaction of people and support those who do not conform to conventional ways of life, such as racial, sexual, and gender minorities. The thing is, in the context of the book, where everything the elite think and say is wrong and everything traditionists think and say is right, there's no other way to interpret that but to say that I don't believe in these things either. And you're like, so this is what I mean by the cowardice, right? It's like, because he's not going to just write, I do not believe in the free and equal interaction of people, (laughs) right? (laughs) But, But concealed in this thing, you just think like, well, ultimately it's impossible to see how the argument doesn't take
0: you to pushing for the eradication of that. Well, therefore he has to, you know, grasp the nettle there and say, well, actually there's less racism now.
1: Oh, yes, he did.
0: Right, so he finds particular like polls about people, um, people's views of a member of their family marrying somebody of a different race. And thankfully that, you know, that, that has indeed improved and there's much, much, much smaller numbers uh, than that. But if one of the reasons why there is less racism is because of progress and because of the things going back to the 60s that he seems to not like. And so he's going, oh, these fucking lefties, you know, stigmatising all this stuff. And they go, anyway, as a result of that, um, people are less racist. So what was the problem? They probably have just worked out how to be less racist on their own without anyone ever saying it was bad.
1: Do you want to say anything else about the book or can we talk a bit more about the elite in general on the um, basis of
0: it? Yes. Can I just quote one more line (coughs) on on racism, which I just thought was absolutely amazing. It says that younger Britons... (laughs) them are more likely to see a range of actions that are not racist as racist Oh yes. not they have a broader definition or a, diff- you know, a different definition they just go it's not racist but they think it is racist goes, such as imitating the accent of another group <laughs> assuming somebody is of a particular race based on their name or people feeling uncomfortable about somebody speaking another language in Britain all these not ra- clearly not racist things <laughs> that fucking zoomers <laughs> Yeah, the Nick's in a twist about I like that bit though, because at least there he owns like his voice.
1: You know, at least there he comes out and goes, I do not think these things are racist. Even though pretty much anyone would disagree with me. You know, because the rest of the time he hides. He, right. he spends so much time hiding that it was kind of a relief yeah. that there was a point to actually hear him say the thing the that mask he is full of and
0: he's trying to struggle <laughs> yeah, to get yeah, back. Yeah. Yeah. But the weird I suppose the weird thing the weird thing about this book, the conclusion that we came to, I think, right, is that. This should have come out in maybe 2017, maybe very early 2020 after the Johnson yeah. uh, election victory. Um, because so much of it is about, ah, we didn't realize we weren't listening to the, uh, you know, the left behind or whatever. There's quite a lot of, of the stuff we were all reading in 2017. But because he just didn't write it then, he has to create this whole new thing. Because most of it is basically really, a lot of this is really obvious stuff that you already know. We had to create this, the new elite to basically give it a hook, but the new elite doesn't make any sense because, like I said, it's about half the country and it includes Jeremy Corbyn and the late Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, what have you? It's not really a book in the sense <laughs> of something that tells a coherent story and needed to exist. It's a, it is a cry for help, in a way. Because, because the thing
1: is that he talks a lot about the realignment. I mean, all around you, you see the realignment fading. know, hmm. when we did the episode on culture war, a lot of that episode was basically us going, like, how did it snap back to normal so quickly? And that's not to say it can't change and can't go wrong. 100% it can. But right now, things feel very different to 2017. You know, if you look at where the political debate is, if you look at sort of the kind of things that Starmer uses... Um, it feels less culture and more economic, basically. Uh, and, and most of those sort of tribal categories have, have shattered. But he can't have that professionally. Because right. if that happens, he, he's kind of fucked, right? Because he's only got the one idea. We've got the one, the, idea, great but the
0: one idea, Yeah, but so, and he, so he can't really reflect. I mean, he does reflect on it, but in a very wild sense, doesn't he? Yeah. So he goes, well, obviously the Tory party has collapsed. yeah, yeah. And Labour, who I'd written off... Like 20 points ahead. But he doesn't even,
1: nonetheless. (laughs) He he doesn't even accept that Labour has changed under Starmer, really. He just sort of doesn't really mention him. He keeps on saying, Labour have got to find a way to show that they're patriotic now. And you're like, it's been like two years of Starmer sort of like painting
0: the flag over his face every time he says it's like, I think they get it, man. I think they got the message. Yeah, and they go, well, this is why they lost the Red Wall. It's like, have you seen like the polls in the Red Wall now? And I think it's just like, you know what's that you know you can't um you can't convince somebody of something if his job depends on him not being convinced of it it's It's simply that the actual reality of what's happening in politics is is inimical to his project
1: I think you see the real danger of that word elite all the way through this thing, which is like so many of the words that we use that we talk about in the podcast they're they're buckets right. Like Zionism, neoliberalism, they're buckets. And you just, you, it's there. You think you know what it means, you don't really, but you just start chucking shit in it, typically stuff you just don't like. It's like, right, that's neoliberalism, that's neoliberalism, that's neoliberalism, off it goes. That's for the bastards. And elite is just like a really big yeah. bucket. You know, like once you sign up to that worldview and have that word, you will just start chucking pretty much anything you don't like in there. And very quickly... Even if you're well meaning, which I don't necessarily think he is, or most of the people that use the word are, what you're doing is creating this sort of fairy tale binary story of like goodies and baddies. You know, there's the goodies and there's the baddies, and all the baddie stuff is the elite stuff, and all the goodie stuff is the real people who happen to agree with me in every respect. Yeah. You know, and, and so you just think like, well, you've, at best, you've infantilized yourself. You know, at, at worst, you've, you've engaged in a very, very pernicious form of conspiracy well, theory uh, thinking. And
0: well, obviously, the, you know, the left talk about elites as well. But dominantly now, when I hear the word, I tend to assume it's coming from the right, which is weird, which obviously would not have made that much sense in the in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And so it's the rise of phrases like in the Nixon, around the Nixon years, like limousine liberal or champagne Mm socialists over here, those kind of things. There's an amazing uh, line I found describing presidential candidate Howard Dean from 2004 and his liberal elite followers a tax-hiking, government-expanding, latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, New York Times-reading, body-piercing, Hollywood-loving, left-wing freak show. Which is sort of, I think that was originally like a rap metal lyric. It's got that kind of of energy. So this is what they're really talking about. This is why Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, can talk about a elites. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of you know, the scion of America's most famous political dynasty, an interview with David Remnick from The New Yorker, called David Remnick elite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what it's become is something where you can just remove yourself from it. So Boris Johnson is not elite. You can do PPE at Oxbridge or another Russell, Russell Group university, you know. Yes. Uh, but there, you're not elite as long as you're sceptical about immigration. Those that, like, that was the only conclusion I could come to, mm-hmm. is that if you have... None of the other stuff, None of the, the, your, your, your education doesn't really matter, your income doesn't matter, your power influence connections don't matter. As long as you're right wing, you get to not be elite anymore in this particular kind of discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it seems to be one of those cases where it's a word that therefore doesn't mean anything, and yet it could still mean something. If it wasn't so abused, it could refer to a certain way that power operates, they well, said the bucket when the bucket becomes that big, like you, you can't really use it anymore, except as an insult. They sort of, I mean,
1: they, it's, it, they really, it's an attempt. I, th- I know this is obviously, it's only over a matter of time before I start saying this shit, but it's nevertheless true. It's an attempt to just sort of remove the validity from liberalism. Now, essentially you just go all of liberalism is elitist views that's what it is anyone that stands up to power has to be in a position of some authority to do it so if it's the court against the well, in fact let's look at what's going on with refugee policy right yeah. if you look at the sort of the court of appeals standing up against rwanda or parliament in the form of the house of lords standing up against the illegal migration bill this week in both cases it's like well, those elitists right you know that's the establishment these are the people that stop us, as we represent the people, from doing the thing that we want to do. So it's part of this sort of functional device to take the scrutiny of power and recast it as a form of sort of elitist tyranny over the people's true will. And
0: turning, as, as the moralising, the worst thing you can do, there's another quote here, that people, who, the liberal elite, people who look down on the average common folk thinking they're smarter and they know better, to tell us how to live our lives. Well, and to be one, fair, that is exactly what I do. <laughs> That's what you do. You tell to me. <laughs> yes. Predominantly, predominantly. <clears throat> um, no, but it's taking like morality, and you go, okay, so morality, you're against basically having strong moral opinions and going, well, I think that we should be, you know, behave like this towards this group or or whatever. And it's like, oh no, no, but the morality of the real people is super important. Your your values of faith and family blood, soil, whatever. Um, well, they're really, really very precious and valuable. You know, now I can see how some, uh, you know, I can see obviously how the status and the prestige of certain moral values changes over time in different societies. But it's almost presented as just like, oh, you're finger-wagging, don't tell us how to live our lives. Whereas, um, to take more American example, and it's like, but unless you're like an anti-gay, anti-abortion book-burner, who's telling, like, a lot of people how to live their lives. But that's fine because you're, like, a real person who lives in real America yeah. and not some snooty toff with a body piercing and blue hair. You know what I mean? Like the, the no, sort no, of I think the you keep on talking
1: hy- and just see where your mind
0: goes. Hi- <laughs> that, that weird hybrid mm-hmm. of where you're both a kind of, like, dirty, hippie sex freak, but also kind of an effete... Like Ivy League fucking Please don't stop. This is the problem. If you try and design <laughs> if you try and design the elite based on what right wing people say it is, you would have like one of those like kids games where you get to slot together different like bits of clothing and say, so okay, so they're gonna have the feet of a clown and they're gonna have the trousers of a farmer and the hat of a pirate. But it's like that. So it's like you can't even visualize. Whereas in the old days, we knew because they wore tight fitting tuxedos and top hats. <laughs> and you just knew where you stood, right?
1: Do you we, actually want me to agree with what you just said? Because I lost track like
0: five minutes ago. I just. <laughs> no, I think we can just, I'll just drop the microphone at that point. Um, and then come back for uh, part two, where we'll be moaning about people what use words wrong. And and um, ask for your questions, uh, which will be a lot of fun. Thank you. We'll see you a bit. And that was part one of Origin Story Live. If you'd like to hear part two, it's exclusively available to our Patreon backers and Apple subscribers. If you'd like to hear it, search... Patreon Origin Story to sign up or go to the Apple Podcast subscribers page and you can hear Dorian Enian talking about the political terms that really really drive them crazy. We hope you enjoy it. Origin Story Live was presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The social media producer is Jess Harpin. and the producers were Anne-marie Luff and me, Jade Bailey, with many thanks to the team at 21 Soho. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.